My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I got people want to make friends, just try and make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The market doesn't just go up like crazy for no reason. It goes up for many reasons that often fly in the face of the analysis you hear every day, including this one, where the Dow ultimately did go down. It dipped to 148 points. S&P went down about 0.19%, but the Nasdaq advanced 0.45%. There we go again. Now, I've spent the better part of this year studying the pandemic because I thought it really held the key to the market, at least for most of the professional money managers out there. And that was right. But you know what we've discovered? The professionals are no longer the only cohort that matters. We've got a massive group of individual investors who become, in many ways, a more powerful collective force than the professionals. And they simply don't care about the same things as the experts. And they're the ones who are the marginal buyers and sellers of stocks. The return of the individual investor has changed the entire character of the market. Ever since the dot-com collapse in 2000, the dialogue surrounding every rally was framed around what could go wrong. What made you not be able to sleep at night? There was very little belief in stocks as an asset class. For the past 20 years, the conventional wisdom said stocks could no longer be trusted. They all trade together as a unit, which means they can tend to lose their value way too quickly when something goes wrong. That thesis only grew more convincing after the financial crisis. On top of that, the conventional wisdom insisted that only a fool would try to pick individual stocks. Too easy to be wrong. But you might as well stop trying to beat the market and just put some of your money in an index fund and park the rest in, uh, safely in bonds. In the last eight months, though, that conventional wisdom has been stood on its head by a new generation of investors who came of age after the rise of commission-free trading. They're much more optimistic than the older generation who are so beaten down they've given up on stocks. They don't care what Wall Street thinks. Upgrades, downgrades, price target changes means nothing to them. It's just gibberish. When an analyst upgrades Tesla after fighting all the way up, well, they accept the fact that that person's not adding any value. They don't even care about traditional parameters of valuation like price to earnings or even price to sales. They only care about who's doing what's right and who's doing what's wrong. They buy a stock that turns out wrong. They can always trade out of it for free because there are no commissions. They're not bound to anything. In other words, this pandemic has become the ultimate changing of the guard. But you might have missed it if you're not as plugged into what's happening with the younger generation. Fortunately, many of the younger investors <laughs> love made money. I run them all over the Internet. I want you to see what they say to me. I want you to consider me the world's unlikeliest avatar of youth culture. First, these newer investors don't understand the appeal of index funds. You can't get rich with them. If you wait for the S&P 500 to admit Tesla, which they talk about all the time, you miss the best move of your life. The most interesting stocks might be gathered into ETF baskets that they experiment with, but mostly they prefer to do homework on individual names themselves because they know how to research on the Internet. And yes, they'll buy calls, okay? Is that really a sin? Only if you do it irresponsibly. They're doing it pretty well, as far as I can tell. Stock picking may be a lost art for most people over 30, but these kids are bringing it back. Second, they hate being told what to do. They know the smartest people in the world don't go to Wall Street anymore. They either try to break in at a tech company or start their own businesses. Now that it no longer requires lots of capital. Where does everyone making a killing on Instagram or Shopify or Etsy who starts a business? Not to mention the businesses that get financing from Square. These aren't just cute developments, people. 
The stock market and the Internet have freed millions of young people from their proverbial chains. We've now got a whole generation of younger adults who are basically raised by the World Wide Web. Now, I think we underestimate how empowering that is and how smart they are and how much they've learned from it. Third, these younger stock pickers, well, they're having a great year. We've heard over and over again that the pandemic accelerated the digitization of industry by five or even seven years, maybe 10 years. Some of that's because of cloud adoption, but a lot of it's simply because the Internet gives you cheaper, smarter ways of doing things. There's a whole wave of companies that exist to help you harness the power of the web without a computer science degree. Hey, by the way, that is actually the secret sauce behind Salesforce, behind Snowflake or Zoom. Uh, You don't need to be a tech genius anymore. You just need a smartphone. The news about the pandemic has played out in their favor, too. Earlier this year, the pessimists warned us that it could take ages to get a functional vaccine. But between all the drug companies that got to work on it and all the governments throwing money at the problem, we're going to have a bunch of vaccines very, very soon. Why is that good news for younger investors? Because they're so collectively lacking in cynicism that they've been willing to buy the stocks of companies that will make a fortune once we beat COVID. Why don't we just talk about one? Okay, I'll just pick one. Well, I've been recommending Norwegian Cruise, okay? And we've caught a double here because I believe in management, and I know that they can borrow money, all the money they want. Wall Street cynics see the cruise lines as hobble companies, weighed down by excessive bond issuance and dilutive equity offerings. But they've been dead wrong for the last four months. You know when they're going to start liking it? I'll tell you one. When they do what I did last night, I saw an ad for Norwegian Cruise when I was watching the NFL. I mean, they got an ad already. They wouldn't spend that kind of money if it weren't for betting on a big comeback. Finally, these younger investors believe in environmental sustainability, not just as an ethos, but as a business model. They know there's money in cleaner energy. They like electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cells. They take companies seriously when they talk about going green. Remember, they lack cynicism. They do their own research and decide whether to trust or not trust. When they trust, they pull the trigger. Of course, you could say this whole cohort of new stock pickers simply got lucky. I get that. Hate them or like them, trying to beat the virus and is now pulling the whole world higher. That is what's happening, by the way. We can see it for the commodities rally. Wall Street got its ideal outcome in the election. Yes, that's right. They're worried about Trump's trade policy and Biden's tax policy. Those are both off the table because Biden won the White House, but the Democrats didn't pick up enough Senate seats to raise taxes. Most important, we have a Federal Reserve chairman who knows what the heck he's doing. Jay Powell kept his foot on the gas pedal because 14 million jobs depend on it. Are these younger investors merely uh, looking at the world through rose-colored glasses? No. No. I think the rest of us are looking at the world through crud-encrusted, cracked lenses to make us feel beaten down and unsure, even when things might be going well. Now you got two choices here. You can stay negative and hope these new stock pickers get blown up, get their comeuppance, or you can try to learn from them, starting with the idea that buying a bond with a sub-1% yield is a waste of money and will get you nowhere. The bottom line, I think it's time to stop disrespecting the younger investors who've nailed 2020 every step of the way. Start taking them seriously. Even after this incredible run, it's not too late to join them. Elizabeth in New York. Elizabeth. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Elizabeth. Hi. I bought Oracle two months ago. Now I'm debating if I should hold it until December 14th or sell. No, no, Oracle's fine. I mean, look, is Oracle going to set the world on fire? There was, there was a period where it did. Now it's just fine. It does a good job. It's an inexpensive stock. Elizabeth, I want you to hold on to, your, to Oracle. Jack in Pennsylvania. Jack. 
Hey, Jim, how we doing? I am good. How about you, Jack? Not bad. First off, just wanted to say go birds. Fly, Eagles, fly. We got this. Super Bowl is still on the menu. We can do this. Jalen Hurts has got us. The future's now. We can do it. All right. Well, I hope you're right because uh, I was very depressed yesterday, but that's okay. Me as well. Me, I'm, me trying, as well. To, I'm right. trying to get um, out of the funk about it. Go ahead. So one of the hot stocks right now seems to be Virgin Galactic, which I managed to get into last week before this huge bull run. Uh, Virgin Galactic is up 17% today, as well right. as around 22% this week, mostly due to the announcement of their test flight window starting on December 11th, along with deals they've inked with NASA, Under Armour, and such. My question yes. is, how would you approach preparing and trading around a non-standard event that could drastically change price, such as this test flight? Well, well I'm actually event- glad you asked me about this, about this company. I'll tell you why. Because I think this is a company that is a, a, a great spec. I mean, it's just got, it has lots of good people behind it. It has contracts. It has business. But is it something that you should bank on? No. You got to take your money and run, or at least half of it, after you've hit it out of the park, as people did who bought this last week. And I salute the people who bought it. Did I recommend it? No. I thought it was too risky. I went with Boeing. This has done better than Boeing, but Boeing's made money for people to Right. The new younger investors have changed the entire character of the market, and they're nailed 2020 every step of the way. Oh, man, buddy, tonight, could ServiceNow be the next cloud software superpower? I'm sitting down with the CEO to find out what's ahead. Then DoorDash is set to go public. But is there appetite for the stock in this market? I'm taking a closer look ahead of its IPO. And a company in the construction industry that succeeds whether buildings are occupied or locked up. I'll reveal the name and whether it's worth considering here when I sit down with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. After spending last month in the doghouse in the wake of all the positive vaccine news, the cloud stocks, well, they've been making a major comeback. It's not just the ones that delivered great numbers last week. The market's also reevaluating high-flying software as a service plays that reported when sentiment was very negative. Take ServiceNow, the cloud-based software company that helps businesses automate all sorts of information, technology processes, back-office jobs. This stock has been a great performer year-to-date. But when the company reported in late October, the stock got slammed falling from 500 to the low 470s in a matter of days, even though the actual results were terrific and we told you so. I should have been screaming from the rooftops, though, saying, you got to buy it right now because Salesforce got his group back, surging to 533 today, about eight, po- eight bucks away from his highs. So we got to ask, have we missed it or is there more? Let's check in with Bill McDermott, the software veteran, president and bankable CEO of ServiceNow. Get a better sense of where his company's headed as we round the corner to 2021. Mr. McDermott, welcome back to May of Money. Thank you very much, Jim. Thanks for having me. All right, so Bill, it's been a full year and an unbelievable year. Everything you promised, Kate, you delivered and far more. What are some reflections? Well, Jim, I tell you, the team has done a great job. And I believe our purpose to help the world work better for people is what ServiceNow is all about. One major pivot was going for helping solve the COVID problem whether that was emergency tracking in the beginning 
or return to work safely now or even help with the vaccine and the distribution process with governments all over the world. We leaned in and it's really paying off, Jim. And it, it, you did it a lot. You've got some incredible government business that somewhat must be related, but the most federal contracts your company's ever had. Yeah, it's, it's been incredible. I mean, what you have here is a frictionless world in many ways navigating through COVID. But people are realizing that the workflow revolution and having a digital platform for digital business like ServiceNow is such a great problem solver, whether it's the state of Alaska, the state of Tennessee, federal government agencies, the military, wonderful work with our veterans. We've been everywhere, and Jim, we're just getting started. All right, so let's get something that everyone will understand. Uh, there's a guy who was once considered the greatest uh, long-distance shooter of all time. I'm not sure you're familiar with him. This fellow was named Bobby <laughs> McDermott. Your grandfather, HOF, NBA, you got an NBA contract to help make it so that they literally had a COVID-free uh, playoff series. What did ServiceNow do? And, you know, NBA could have picked anybody. They picked you. Well, it's a real, real honor to work with Adam Silver and the NBA and the WNBA. You know, you think about the complexity of working in the bubble and solving all the difficult problems in a digital world where people could be completely safe. And as you know, Jim, it was an incredible success. So we're very proud to be the WNBA and the NBA official workflow partner. And as it relates to Bobby McDermott, uh, my grandfather, you know, my dad had quite a set shot himself. So basketball runs in our family. And it's just uh, such an honor to be associated with the great game of basketball. Okay, so you have now more than a thousand customers that with over $1 million in annual contract value. It, it, can you recall how many you had a year ago before you got there? Yeah, we were probably about uh, half of that, Jim. So we've made um, quite a move into the C-suite. Today, digital transformation, as you've rightfully said, Jim, many times, is the opportunity of this generation. And CEOs have realized that if you want to do digital business, you want to transform your company, create new business models, give your employees great experiences. We have customers that are hiring thousands of employees they've never even met, but they're doing it on the Now platform, or give your customers a great service, or build your own applications on the fly. The one architecture, the one platform, the one data model, centricity of ServiceNow is fundamentally changing business today, Jim. And that's why we're growing faster than all the others. And that's why enterprises are doing big business with ServiceNow. And Bill, a lot of times we hear about companies, their gross margin advanced. We can't really figure out how they did it. What did they do? When you bring in a ServiceNow, your earnings go higher traditionally, right? Absolutely. The, uh, the best businesses out there, whether they're in the public or the private sector, are now running ServiceNow. 85% of the Fortune 500 are running ServiceNow. And why are they doing this? Well, if you look at Disney, they reinvented Disney with Disney+. Plus. If you look at Zoom, they're handling 300 million consumers on the fly each and every day. If you look at Facebook, they teamed up with us on the virtual agent so they can give their users a great experience. So it's all about people and giving a Michelin three-star experience to a customer 
requires your employees to have the best possible tools. And that's where ServiceNow comes in, Jim. Well, next question, Bill, you are uh, dominating that vertical. What can you do next? Because I look at ServiceNow as being a, a companion, an aid, uh, a company you can lean on for all sorts of different things. You call Bill McDermott. Bill McDermott solves a lot of your problems. <laughs> Absolutely. What's amazing about ServiceNow, whether it's partnering with the collaboration layers in the enterprise, such as Microsoft and Teams, um, it is partnering with the systems of record where you have 550 of them in the enterprise. We make business run so much better because our platform integrates with everything. So we're essentially a cross-platform integration engine and we create new business models and we snap in to this complexity that's been created over the last half century so simply that we get customers up and running in days, if not weeks, and they get massive returns on their invested capital with ServiceNow. Jim, this is why we have the highest net promoter score, customer right. satisfaction, and loyalty in the business software industry. No, that's, well, it's a great company, and you've taken it to the next level. Bill McDermott, CEO of ServiceNow. Always great to see you, Bill. Congratulations on one year. Thank you so much, Jim. Uh, guys, look, I've loved the stock for a long time, and I don't know. What am I going to say? Still a buy. Stick with Kramer. If you're taking a break in October, November, the IPO market is about to come roaring back with two huge deals coming later this week. DoorDash on Wednesday and Airbnb on Thursday. Now, these are going to be the second and third largest initial public offerings of 2020 after Snowflake, which we featured last Friday. So I want you to be prepared for the action. And I know you probably can't get any on the deal, but at least you'll have knowledge. And knowledge is power in these IPO that we're about to talk about. Both DoorDash and Airbnb have been making a fortune, and that's thanks to the pandemic. You can understand why they're so eager to come public before we get vaccinated. DoorDash allows you to get food delivered at a time when dining out feels pretty dangerous. Airbnb allows you to go on a contactless vacation. You rent someone's house, you clean it, you never see, well, you never need to see another human being. Unlike, say, staying at a hotel where, heaven forbid, you share an elevator or you wait in line to check in with anti-maskers who don't believe that they have anything they can give you, including COVID. Tonight, we'll start with DoorDash. We're going to cover Airbnb tomorrow. Now, DoorDash is an online delivery service that connects nearly 400,000 merchants with over 18 million consumers uh, through their, na- their national network of more than a million gig economy dashers. They're in roughly the same business as Grubhub or Uber Eats. Look, I'm a big believer in on-demand food delivery as a technology. This is obviously the future, especially when you consider that most people born in the last 40 years absolutely detest talking on the phone to another human being. But I haven't always been a believer in the online delivery companies. Too much competition funded by venture capital investors who don't care about turning a profit. Lately, though, we've seen two major shifts. First, there was COVID. When the pandemic hit, something like DoorDash went from a luxury to a necessity, at least if you don't want to cook for yourself. Second, we've seen a wave of consolidation that's incredible. DoorDash buying Caviar, Square's old delivery service, then Uber Eats gobbling up Postmates, and Grubhub selling itself to European rival. The result, demand is off the charts and there's less competition. Hallelujah. Like with so many other adaptations in the last nine months, I suspect there's no going back. Anyone who wasn't already using these platforms to get food delivered is now a convert. 
Sure, the whole industry will take a revenue haircut when the vaccine is widely distributed and restaurants can reopen for regular, non-socially distanced in-person dining. But a company like DoorDash should still be years ahead of where we expected them to be in 2021. Plus, for the moment, these delivery services have their customers on the ropes. You need customers? DoorDash can give you customers. Last year alone, their clients saw a 59% same-store sales growth. Did it? 59 on the DoorDash marketplace. However, it'll cost you. The fees vary. Bigger chains get better deals. But typically, these guys take a 10 to 25% cut. It's brutal. But right now, restaurants will take whatever they can get. The same goes for DoorDash's couriers. Given that we're at a time of elevated unemployment, the world is different right now. So how does DoorDash compare to the rest of the industry? Well, it's the largest and fastest growing business in the on-demand delivery space. The company now has 50% category share in the United States, 58% share in the suburban markets. Three years ago, they had just 17% share nationwide. DoorDash is focused on dominating the suburbs and smaller cities, which seems like a better strategy than going for the big cities. It's always been easy to get delivery in, say, New York. But if you live in the suburbs or a smaller city, well, there's historically been a shortage of good delivery options. In a big city, these digital delivery plays just make the process more convenient. But in the suburbs... They're offering you something you probably couldn't get otherwise. Plus, there are more families in the suburbs, meaning bigger orders and more places to park, meaning the process is more efficient. And DoorDash still has a ton of room to grow. In the most recent month, we have data for their user base uh, represented less than 6% of the U.S. That's all. There's so much room to grow. Last year, DoorDash handled $8 billion worth of transactions, compared to $600 billion of transactions for the entire restaurant and food service industry. In short, the company still has an enormous addressable market opportunity, and that's just in food. They're already expanding into other areas like groceries, flowers. That's why DoorDash has tremendous revenue growth, but still losing massive amounts of money because investing in growth is expensive. They have to spend a fortune on sales, marketing, and promotions to bring in these new customers. That's why a lot of people don't believe in the company. I think that makes sense to do what they're doing. I think they're smart. DoorDash's business model is what I call a virtuous circle. You bring in new customers that make the platform more valuable to restaurants. You bring in more restaurants that attracts more users. And they've been able to retain these users as they scale back promotions and ads in a given area. So how do the numbers look? All right, well, look, the growth here is extraordinary. Last year, DoorDash's total orders increased by, it's hard to believe these numbers, 217%. Gross order volume was up 186%. Revenue grew at an astounding 204% clip. In the first nine months of 2020, those figures are holding up. Total orders decelerated a tiny bit to 198%. Gross margin order volume accelerated to 200%. Revenue growth accelerated to 226%. Wow. Share and growth. Fantastic. What can I say about a company with 200% revenue growth? Well, that's even better than Snowflake. And they've done it in two years in a row. And when you drill down quarter by quarter, the numbers have been accelerating dramatically over the course of 2020. But, and this is a big but, obviously 2020 is a unique moment. Remember, late last year, DoorDash acquired Caviar, meaning not all the growth is organic. Snowflake is organic. Plus, on top of that, they're getting a major boost from the pandemic. That makes it tough to figure out how quickly they'll be able to grow in the future if and when the pandemic is finally, uh, let's say, uh, under control. How about profitability? While DoorDash is still far from profitable, their margins are headed in the right direction and fast to the point where they're actually generating positive earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation and amortization. I did not think that was possible this fast. These gig economy plays also like to talk about what's called their contribution margin, what they make after you subtract all sorts of variable costs like marketing and stock based compensation. And in the case of DoorDash, the contribution margin swung from negative 2 percent last year to up 3 percent in the first nine months of the year. That's about what we'd expect, given that the on-demand delivery business has become a lot less competitive in the past 12 months because of all of the agglomeration. 
The, it's been incredible. You used to be able to pit these guys against each other. Remember, I own a restaurant and a bar. I know these things. My big concern here is that DoorDash is coming in hot. The numbers are fabulous right now, but we don't know how much of that is sustainable. So I expect the IPO to catch fire right out of the gate, even as I worry that it's destined for a pullback when the growth slows in 2021 and the company's up against some very tough comparisons. We know DoorDash plans to come public at a $90 to $95 price range. Final price should be announced tomorrow. At the midpoint, we're talking about a $30 billion valuation. And you know what? Based on the estimates from D.A. Davidson, the stock would be trading at less than seven times next year's sales estimates. I know. People say, oh, come on, Jim. We care about earnings. Fast growth, you do it by sales, all right? It's pretty cheap for a company with 200% growth, although it's more expensive than its slower-growing peers like Grubhub. Given that DoorDash's growth is expected to slow to 56% next year, I'd be hesitant to give it a cloud-style valuation. I think $100 is a reasonable price, though, but I doubt you'll be able to get it that low. Here's the bottom line. DoorDash is a terrific story. But its business could slow substantially next year. So I recommend being careful with it. If, look, if you can get it for $100 or less, you got my blessing. Otherwise, sorry, it, you had to get in on the deal because you can't chase these. You just can't. How about go to Pete in California? Pete. Hey, Jimmy, how you doing? I love your show. Here I am enduring lockdown in California, sitting in my chair doing nothing. So it's a perfect time for you to jump on and give me your latest thoughts on Uber, please, sir. Okay, I think that Uber, uh, there was a really good uh, series of pieces that have come out in the last few weeks about how well Uber is doing. And one of the reasons why they're doing so well is Uber Eats has finally really come into uh, its own. I think Uber is a very well-run company. And when people come back to to travel again, people will take Uber. They are already taking it. But Uber Eats is the star here, and it's really doing well. I want to go to court in Pennsylvania. Court. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I'm an Action Alerts Plus member. I thank just want to you. thank you for everything you do for the retail investor. Thank you. Investor Big club call Wednesday, 1130. Thank you. <laughs> I won't miss it. Good. Uh, my company is an e-commerce place. Uh, it's similar to Shopify, but on a smaller scale. They have numerous small to mid-sized businesses on their platform, but they target and service enterprise customers as well, such as Chapstick, Nikon, and Fiber Energy. They have a $5.5 billion market cap, trade at 26 times sales, their small to mid-size ARR is up 30, 38% year-over-year year with acceleration over the last four quarters, and their enterprise ARR is up 48% with a 79% gross margin. Can I get your thoughts on big commerce, ticker Big C? I will tell you this. As is often the case, Court in Pennsylvania knows more about this company than I do. So I am not going to say, you know what, I think that you've got to do more homework because you have already done the homework. I do think that that, that, uh, that price to sales is pretty darn high. But I want to look into this company. Court may have just given us a very winning idea. All right. The IPO market is about to come roaring back. We look at this. This didn't look anything like this two years ago. They were all going at each other. I like the DoorDash story. But, you know, we got to be a little careful because it is going to slow next year. Much more than we have money ahead, including my exclusive with an under-the-radar 5G player. I'll reveal the name when I sit down with the CEO. It does a lot of other things, too. Then why is it just too risky for so many commentators to be right? I'm going to explain, and it's going to, let's say, make you feel like, wait a second, I want better. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. If you told me a year ago that special purpose acquisition companies would become some of the hottest stocks in the market, well, I would have laughed in your face. In the old days, SPACs were publicly traded pools of money uh, that, that would set their sights on fragmented industries and then consolidate them via a series of takeovers. Good strategy. But this year, we've seen more and more SPACs serving as springboards for exciting startups to come public with reverse mergers. 
That said, there are still companies following the old playbook. Take API Group, that which is the part of a, a SPAC deal that was completed last year with the stock that's up 70% since it was uplisted to the New York Stock Exchange back in April. API is a leader in niche industries like fire protection and sprinkler systems. They're also a top five specialty contractor and a major player in 5G installation services. Even before merging with J2 Holdings, the SPAC they joined forces with last year, API had a history of making smart, bold on acquisitions, and they plan to stick with it. However, the stock is cheap right now. It's selling for 13 times next year's earnings, which is why they rolled out a $100 million buyback last week. I find this story intriguing. But don't take it from me. Let's dig deeper with Russ Becker. He's the president and CEO of API Group. Get a better sense of his company's prospects. Mr. Becker, welcome to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Uh, if you would have uh, told me uh, 15 months ago I'd be uh, interviewing with you, I would have uh, probably uh, shook my head. <laughs> okay. Well, look, we both know a uh, man by the name of Martin Franklin, who is the glue here. Martin uh, put together a very good uh, group of people who are working with you now, Martin's doing it via SPAC. How is this different from all the years that you ran API? You know, Jim, I mean, that's a great question. I don't view it um, like it's a SPAC. I view it like we found the right home, you know, for the company. Uh, the company has grown uh, tremendously over the last 15 years. And, you know, as we had looked for, you know, what's next for API in the next chapter of API, um, you know, we had had conversations with private equity and such. And um, when I first met Martin, uh, specifically Martin and Jim Lilly, um, I felt a connection right away. Culturally, we were aligned. Values-wise, we were aligned. And their tremendous experience, you know, operating and growing, you know, larger organizations was something that was very attractive to us. And so I just feel like we found the right home, and I don't view it um, any other way than that. Okay, now your company does, uh, it's hard to learn, frankly, because it has so many different uh, businesses. But I look at it and I think that you are big in replacing pipeline and infrastructure. You do a lot of 5G work, but you do a lot of service work, too. And the more service work you do, it seems like you make more money. Can you talk about the mosaic of businesses? Because you've been around a long time and you do very well. Yeah, we, I appreciate that. Um, so the company, you know, really the two the two primary um, areas of focus for us are in safety services, which is life safety. And uh, we're, we're one of the largest um, providers of life safety services in, in North America. And uh, we like the statutory nature of the business, which drives the inspection component of it. Um, and the inspections drives the service um, piece of it. And um, so we have a you know, a go-to-market strategy of selling the inspection work first in the already built environment. And we feel that that brings a protective mode around the company. And that's our, you know, probably our number one priority. Second, if you look at our uh, specialty services segment, you know, we find that's the work that we do in that segment to be acyclical to the, you know, macro U.S. economy. That's you know, the telecom work, that's the, uh, the, the uh, um, replacement of existing natural gas distribution systems, potable water distribution systems. And our clients' um, capital programs are very robust, and we have great visibility into them, and it's a space that we, that we really like and we really enjoy. And as we continue to put those, those two pieces together, we feel that that brings the resiliency to the business model, which has allowed us to operate um, through the pandemic. All right, but Russ, let me ask you. How do you attract investors in an era where people either want to be in the Facebooks, the Amazons, or they want to be in the cloud stocks, they want to be in some of the semiconductors? I mean, you are a, what I would regard as a plain old great American company. 
How do you even get people's attention? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, being a newly minted public company, that's one of our, our, our greatest challenges, right, is how do we continue to, uh, to tell the story and, um, and share, you know, what we're all about and, and, and share, share with people the, uh, the focus that we have on services. And, you know, we continue to refine that, you know, and as a new public company CEO, that's, um, that's a learning opportunity for me, which I've actually found quite, um, quite fun, motivating and intellectually challenging. So, um, but we continue, we're, we're participating in, you know, not in deal road shows. We continuously, um, are trying to promote the company and, uh, um, you know, get better established. And I feel like we're having positive uh, track record with that. Well, you sure are. You're up 70% for the year. You got a lot of good businesses. And I think that people should understand that not everything has to be a cloud-based company. Ross Becker, President and CEO of API Group, APG. Great to meet you, sir. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity, Jim. All right, guys, inexpensive stock. Okay, not sexy. Why does everything have to be, I don't know, NVIDIA? And I love NVIDIA. Man, money's back here to the break. It is time! It's time for the lightning round. Well, of course, one of the And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dead on the lightning round. Let's start with Alex in New Jersey. Alex! Hey, Jimmy. Yo. What do you think about Domino's Pizza, brother? I think Domino's is very good. Now, I know Rich Allison was on today. I just think that, look, if you can deliver food, and do it contactless, it's a win, and it'll stay a win. So I like Domino's. How about Elizabeth in Florida? Elizabeth. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. Majesty of all stars. I, I, I wouldn't quit your day job. Gilead, G-I-L-D. Gilead. Now, that makes some sense. Now, hey, Gilead had really good news about new drugs this weekend. And what happened? The stock went down anyway. What does that tell you? It tells you. Let's go to Stephen in Pennsylvania. I did like that music. Stephen in Pennsylvania. Stephen. Booyah, Jimmy Chell. Yo. First time caller, longtime follower from South Philly, New York, Eagles Hey, from Tampa Reed. Being a great American with the sport, you would be a unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer. There you go. Thank you for helping many of us make money over the years. Well, that's the goal. I read a great book, Get Rich Carefully, twice. Thanks. Woo. I'm calling about Bloom Energy. I bought it a few weeks ago at 18, and it's up over 50%. Yeah, it's a fuel cell company. Steve, I got to tell you, the fuel cell companies, you know, I'm believers. I don't like to, you know, I'm a believer, but I don't want to be greedy, right? We have a really nice move. We sell some right now. We lock in some gains. Let the rest run. That way we don't feel bad if we start if the stock starts going down because that group is very wild. But you know I'm a believer. Let's go to John in Michigan. John. Hey Jim, I love the show. Thank uh, you. just wanted to know your thoughts on Acadia Pharmaceuticals. Okay, they do central nervous system, which has historically been very, very difficult. Everybody who's really tried in the end has failed to do a lot of good stuff in central nervous system, maybe Biohaven maybe. But I like these guys. I think it's a very good spec. But remember, it's not been a successful field for companies that are the big companies that are in it. Let's go to Mike in Florida. Mike. Hey, Jimmy. I'm concerned, and I would like to know about the home builders in 2021. I've got a handful of them. I'm just going to pick one, Lenar. Well, the problem is Toll Brothers reported a really great quarter, and then the stock starts going down because people have always feels that 
We are at the la- the end of the housing boom. This time it's the end because they feel like the pandemic's going to end. I think that Lenar is a good company. Let's take a look at it after I read the Toll Brother conference call when I get home tonight. Doug in New Jersey. Doug. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I'm doing well. How I about wanna- you? Good, good. I want to get your take on Lee Auto, ticker symbol L-I. Yeah, I prefer Neo to, to, to L-I. I don't recommend Chinese stocks with the exception of uh, Alibaba. And let me make something very clear for the people who give me a hard time on uh, Twitter. I think the Chinese handled the pandemic better than we did. I, I'm sorry. I don't think that that's really revelatory. But it's people are angry that I say it. And you know what I say? Hey, I beg to differ. Let's take one more. Let's go to Antonio in Michigan. Antonio. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Uh, I've been wondering for a while now what your thoughts are on the data center, data storage sector, uh, coupled with edge computing uh, with a specific focus on vertical holding, ticker is VRT. I, look, I remember sitting down with Dave Cody maybe 10 months ago and listening to all the great things that that company was doing, and there it is. It's up 75%. What a remarkable company, just blocking tackling in the data center. It's just a very, very good SPAC. I like it a lot. Dave is the chairman. He used to be the CEO of Honeywell. I need to go to Dennis in Maryland. Dennis. Jim, how you doing? This is Dennis out of Only Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. Got right. a question about a company called Cryoport. Um, they're, they're in the, the cold supply chain space. Um, and I think with the, uh, the COVID-19 environment that we're in with Pfizer and Moderna, that they may be a, a great facilitator um, to those companies we're, and, we're and, not, and distributing them. Yeah, but we're not sure. I mean, we know that, like, David Faber did a really good piece about Carrier. Uh, I know that that's not what you want. I mean, that Carrier is a very boring company. But this one's, look, maybe they're in. I will check. But that is a tough, uh, you know, you got to be very careful with specs like that. you got to be very careful. Jacob in Alabama. Jacob. Hey, Roll Tide, Kramer. I'm a new viewer and investor. I was wondering what you're thinking about 1-800-Flowers. Good business. Not a great business. Not a bad business. Not a fast grower. Not. It kind of doesn't intrigue me because I think there's so many others that are fast, that are more exciting, and uh, can also others that have a better dividend. This doesn't have a dividend. A lot of other stocks that I like more. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. What's better than Mad Money? How about more Mad Money? Follow Mad Money on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to go one-on-one with Kramer. Reaction. What other questions do we have? Ah, I always tell people you've got to start with an index fund. Because I need you to be diversified. Get more with guests. How do you stay sure? And go behind the scenes with the most interactive show on television. If you can't explain in three bullets why you're buying a certain stock, don't buy it. Follow Mad Money today. How many times have you heard that euphoria is dangerous? That it's all going to end in tears? Those are such easy words to say, but that doesn't make them good advice. We've had an incredible run here, and the bears have lost you money every step of the way. 
I keep thinking about this because I know the moment anyone with a platform goes positive and says buy stocks, they run what I call the YouTube risk. Yes, it can be repeated endlessly. And that really isn't worth it unless you're a masochist like me. Have you ever noticed all these fund managers who come on air or are quoted in a newspaper saying they can't talk about individual stocks? Oh, I can't talk about it. Oh, no, I can't talk about individual stocks. These are usually the same people who warn you that speculation is bad, that euphoria has gotten out of control. You know why they don't mention individual stocks? Believe me, it's not because they're, they're trying to be helpful. They just don't want to put their necks on the chopping block in case this one turns out to be the top or that one turns out to flop. That fear has kept them cautious month after month after month as you're trying to figure out what to do, even as the market refuses to peak. They still say the same things, though, because there's no percentage in sounding bullish as a commentator. The incentives are all messed up here. No one is ever punished for being too bearish. There will never be a YouTube highlight (laughs) of all the times you scared people away from stocks on the way up. All the scorn is reserved for bulls who got the timing wrong. Unfortunately, that produces really unhelpful commentary. When the bears are given a free pass and the bulls are constantly punished, you end up with a situation where countless experts try to push people away from one of the greatest markets I have ever seen. What exactly are these commentators saying? Here's the unvarnished version that they'll tell you about offline. First, they think young people who buy stocks are a bunch of idiots. And the stocks they like think Tesla and the Tesla derivatives are hopelessly overvalued. They say it to me endlessly. Second, they believe that if the Robinhood traders are really that smart, they hand their money over to the professionals who know what they're doing, even as the most, most professionals have not had a great year in 2020, or frankly, any year that I can think of. Third, they simply don't understand the enthusiasm for individual stocks. They can't figure out how companies like Carnival, for example, can continue to issue debt and more equity and still see their stocks go higher. Where, it, it, aren't people worried about dilution? But they won't say that on air because they will worry again that it will keep climbing without them. Better to say you don't talk about individual stocks. How can you ever be wrong if you don't talk about individual stocks? Hey, I'm sorry, I can't talk about Carnival. I don't talk about individual stocks. How can these so-called experts live with themselves after being so wrong for so long? Turns out it's pretty easy. They do well as long as they caveat their predictions so that no one who listens would ever take any action that they could be blamed for. Look, maybe I'm a moron with no sense of self-preservation. It's been said. But I think that kind of commentary is useless. To me, the important thing is helping people to try to make money. That's what mad money's about. Even as you know I'm going to make mistakes and try to own as many of those as I can, even if it's more painful than most people can endure. In this environment, helping you try to make money means being an optimist. That's a dangerous posture because optimists get punished when they're wrong. Pessimists are always treated like geniuses everywhere. But look, at the end of the day, I think you deserve the truth. You deserve ideas. You deserve a recognition that the market has moved up without these brain genius money managers because they don't share your enthusiasm. Which brings us to the obvious question. When will all the commentators who hate the market finally admit that they should have been more bullish on stocks that have endlessly moved higher? When will we stop treating them like sages and admit that they've missed the boat over and over and over again? Sadly, my guess is never. It's just too risky for them to try to be right. And permanent bears always get a free pass because negativity sounds so smart. As for me, I'd rather try to be right than try to look smart, even as at times it's trying beyond belief. But I know that saying I am sorry, I can't tell you to buy this one or sell that one, is a complete waste of your time. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.